Well, we're, we're a bit late, so shall I um, start? I've got an excuse to talk about myself because um, both Claudia's um, biography, autobiography, and mine are both omitted for some strange Freudian reason. And, um, and um, so, so I, I did a PhD at the Warburg, but I almost did a PhD with Francis Yates because Joe Trapp, who ended up supervising me very brilliantly and tolerantly, initially sent me, he didn't want me, obviously didn't want me, sent me to Francis Yates. And um, I wanted to do the Catholic Earl of Arundel, but I hadn't mentioned him yet. I didn't know about her being, considering herself an English Catholic. But um, there was some possibility of me doing Henry Prince of Wales, a long time before Roy Strong and Tim Wilkes. And, um, so, but I mentioned at one point in this interview with Francis Yates, um, I mentioned print the Prince of Wales, Henry Prince of Wales as a Calvinist. And she said, Calvinist? He was a Rosicrucian. And I realized at that point it would be a mistake to continue. Um, so I went back to Joe and he, and he accepted me. Anyway, um, these, we've got two, um, as I say, Claudia's um, uh, autobiography is missing. And, um, but Felix is almost entirely present. I think the, the last sentence drops off the page. So I'll do a summary of that anyway. Um, Felix teaches at the University of Siegen. He studied at the Goethe University, Frankfurt, and received his PhD from the University of Hamburg with a dissertation on literary reflections of scientific thought in early modern London. And this, that, that book was, um, was carried out, a lot of it, at the Warburg, wasn't it? Yeah. Abi Warburg Fellow. And today he's going to talk to us on the art of memory, which is a very clear and straightforward title, I think. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the title of the program is a mine. I don't know why I ended up talking about the art of memory. I didn't know enough about the art of memory to be <laughs> filling the whole space with the art of memory. So I'll be talking. Yeah, I'll be talking a little bit about Shakespeare um, as well. So um, my interest really in Yeats was sparked 25 years ago when uh, Klaus Reichert, who came to the Warwick Institute in the late 1970s, taught me as an undergraduate um, at Frankfurt. Reichert had worked for the German publishing house Suhrkamp, editing and translating Virginia Woolf, Beckett and Joyce, before taking up a position at the University of Frankfurt. Owing to his time at the Warburg Institute, he taught us Shakespeare with a bit of Yeats on the side. Reichert's seminal study on the goddess Fortuna, published in 1985, includes 15 extensive references to Yeats. Reichert had discussed the manuscript, um, of that book in March 1980 with Francis Yates, who Reichert refers to as the Entdeckerin versunkener Kontinente einstigen Selbstverständnisses, the discoverer of sunken continents of concepts and ideas once deemed self-evident. Yates passed away one year after discussing the legacy of classical and medieval conceptions of Fortuna in the early modern period with a diligent student Reichert listening to her. I think it is fair to say that with Reichert, Yeats did have a Nachleben, a Nachleben in the sense of how Warburg, Warburg used the term, an afterlife that is not determined by chains of cause and effect, by lines of traditional transmission, an afterlife that is not a rebirth or repetition, but an appropriation of images and ideas that exist as phantoms and symptoms in a space-time continuum that runs parallel with established histories, trends, and methods. 
And as a result, as an undergraduate at Frankfurt in the 1990s, I wasn't aware of the marginalization of Yeats in academia. As we all know, Yeats scholarship has had been discredited by Harry Levin and Hal Smith in 1976 with their reviews of Yeats, Shakespeare's Last Plays and Shakespeare Quarterly and Renaissance Quarterly, respectively. And the final blow, as Richard mentioned earlier this morning, was dealt by Brian Vickers in 1979 with uh, his paper, Francis Yeats and the Writing of History, in which Vickers ends his scathing and lengthy review of Yeats, the Rosicrucian Enlightenment, with a quote from the 18th century Shakespeare scholar, Joseph Ritson, and I'm quoting Ritson by Vickers now, the opposing and refuting of general charges by proof and circumstance commonly requires much more time and space than the making of them. There have been occasional attempts to restore Yeats to her former glory, most prominently perhaps by Anthony Grafton and Nancy Siraci, who in their introduction to Natural Particulars, Nature and the Disciplines of Renaissance Europe in 1999, mentioned Yeats as only second to Foucault. Um, quote, the seminal studies of Michel Foucault and Francis Yeats, even if not fully persuasive in every aspect, have made it impossible for historians ever again to ignore the role of various forms of magi magical thinking and practice in the Renaissance understanding of the natural world. I think it is, um, there's also Lisa Jardine's verdict of uh, 1986, um, which is, I think, balanced. Uh, she's pointed out that the center of Yeats' historical interest may not be ours, her exuberant pursuit of the hermetic and enthusiasm for the magical may have been incautious, but the awareness of the complexity of the intellectual past is recognizable, uh, recognizably progressive. I think it is lamentable that Yeats is only remembered now mostly, at least among Shakespeare scholars, for interest in the occult. Um, and I think that a return to Yeats' art uh, of memory may prove that her ideas were indeed progressive and that current scholarship in the field of Shakespeare studies can engage fruitfully with her understanding of the use of images in the early modern period, in particular when looking at how Shakespeare's characters um, in Lyne's phrase, use, quote, cognitive rhetoric of images for mnemonics and for, in particular, um, the use of images for remembering. With the last sentence of chapter 12 in um, The Art of Memory, that's the conflict between Brunian and Ramism, uh, Brunian and Ramism's uh, memory, Francis Yates invites us to reflect on the rise of Shakespeare in European culture. Quote, may not the urgency and the agony of this conflict between the inner images being totally removed by the Ramist method or being magically developed, that's Brunian, have helped to precipitate the emergence of Shakespeare? These words, as so often, Yates ends on a speculative note, and that's the last sentence of that chapter. And she invites us to think about Shakespeare's use of images and what this use may tell us about changing notions of the art of memory. And as often again, Yeats does not elaborate on her speculative note. However, without pursuing the question herself, Yeats has thus envisaged the research field in Shakespeare studies that has gained currency in the last few years with cognitive approaches to Shakespeare, um, such as, for example, Raphael 
Raphael Lyons' Shakespeare Rhetoric and Cognition of 2012, from which uh, Yeats is completely absent. Um, well, the study of images in Shakespeare has moved away from Spurgeon's biographical study of 1935 and Clayman's investigation of their dramatic function, 1977. The connection between memory and imagery that Yeats points to has been part and parcel of studies that focus on Shakespeare's use of rhetoric, from um, Heinrich Platt, Frank Kermel, to Jennifer Richards, and of course, uh, Peter Mack. However, I think that Yeats' speculations can gain currency again in the wake of the emerging field of cognitive literary studies. And I think it is a pity that none of these authors who are working in the field today acknowledge Yeats' pioneering work. So what I will attempt in the following is a re-evaluation re of the observation that Yeats made, her sense that the advent of Ramist thinking, if not Ramist method, may have had a fundamental effect on Shakespeare's use of imagery. Now, it has been recognized widely, of course, that Ramism had proved influential in England and that a new humanist rhetoric had evolved in the wake of the Reformation. Educational reforms sparked by Erasmus had favored a rhetoric that was less concerned with syllogistic rigor but with techniques of persuasion, as argued by David Norbrook, for example. For the Renaissance, rhetoric involved a challenge to scholastic logic, but certainly not to all forms of rational argument. In stimulating an interest in debate, rhetoric helped to lay the foundations for some forms of challenge to political authority. In their critique of scholastic reasoning, Renaissance humanists shifted their attention from the demonstrative proof of the syllogism to the more pragmatic proofs of dialectic, a mode of argument which offered practical effectiveness rather than necessary truth. Norbrook goes as far as to argue that rhetoric is a subversive force which reveals the arbitrariness of all structures of meaning. It is thus intrinsically opposed to ideology, whose role is to naturalize such structures. And he lists among the more pragmatic proofs of dialectic, provisional modes of argument, analogy, and comparison. Conducive to the rise of a new kind of rhetoric was certainly the advent of Ramist logic in England. Um, and that's uh, Cifoletti. In the 16th century, Ramos took this reform, reconceiving rhetoric as dialectic, further by regarding the first two parts of the art of oratory, invention, and disposition as a true art of thinking. Ramos called these two parts eloquence, while he reserved the term rhetoric for simple elocution and pronunciation. The influence of Ramism on the philosophical tradition, for example, on place logic, had been acknowledged by Michael McCandless, among others, long before Yeats wrote her Art of Memory. But the connection that Yeats suggests between Ramism, the classical tradition of the Art of Memory, and Shakespeare's use of rhetoric and imagery still warrants further investigation. What most approaches to Shakespeare from the vantage point of cognitive literary studies lack is an awareness of the historicity of thinking. By assuming that cognition is diachronically universal, Leading voice in the field of cognitive literary studies ignore the historical context and, imply, and apply contemporary psychological and neurological theories. As a result, Shakespeare's texts lose all their specific literary quality, a quality that cannot easily be separated from its Elizabethan or Jacobean cultural background and intellectual framing. 
anybody who's taught Shakespeare knows how wide the gap is that separates us from his time in his mode of thinking. Consider the imagery used by the gardener in Richard II when explaining to the Queen that Richard has little or no support among the political elite, while Bolingbroke does. Pardon me, madam, little joy have I to breathe this news. Yet what I say is true. King Richard, he is in the mighty hold of Bolingbroke. Their fortunes both are weighed. In your Lord's scale is nothing but himself and some few vanities that make him light. But in the balance of great Bolingbroke, besides himself are all the English peers, and with that odds he weighs King Richard down. One way of explaining the illogical core of that imagery, the fact that Bolingbroke, uh, Bolingbroke's scale filled with him and all the English peers goes up, while Richard's scale with the king all on his own goes down, is to evoke Fortuna, and not justitia. The scales operate like the wheel of fortune. Bolingbroke rises as Richard falls. Shakespeare thus contracts two semantic fields regardless of their incompatibility. And contemporary audiences would have been able to make sense of the complex metaphor without taking offense that the imagery at its core is irrational, of course. It can be argued that it is the two-bucket well that serves as a source domain here, in fact, that image is evoked in the following scene by Richard himself, says, now is this golden crown like a deep well that owes two buckets filling one another. Yeats, as far as I know, never commented on the garden scene in Richard II, but I suggest that it is possible to read the conflict in imagery as a result of the process that precipitated, in her words, the emergence of Shakespeare as a result of the agony of a conflict between the inner images being totally removed by the Ramis method or being magically developed. Yeats' take on how Ramism appropriated the classical art of memory and the Brunian version of it can be summarized thus. Ramis rejects the use of loci and imagines and argues in favor of two modifications. First, that not loci and imagines be used, but dialectical order. This dialectical order is then used to arrange the material from the general to the specific. And second, the art of memory should be stripped of its artificiality so that the architectural elaborate arrangement of all the parts of the speech is replaced with a natural, or, um, or, uh, a natural order that is inherent to the subject matter of the speech. The emergence of Shakespeare's ode, in Yeats' view, to the fact that Shakespeare, or Shakespeare's characters, perhaps, used Ramist dialectical logic as the frame for their line of thinking, but that then the tradition of Lozi and Imagines erupts from underneath that dialectical plane. In other words, his characters often start out with a dialectical argument, to be a coward or to be an avenger, but as, the flesh, as they flesh out their argument with imagery, these neat distinctions and binary oppositions begin to collapse. Strictly speaking, the phenomenon that I'm getting at is not really about memorizing speeches. Um, so I'm not talking about how actors actually memorize their parts. It is more to do with characters organizing their thought with the help of images that are taken from memory. Now let us look at how Raphael Lyne describes the mental process at work in Shakespeare's characters. 
One of Lyon's case studies is Macbeth, and this is how he discusses Macbeth's soliloquy in Act 1, Scene 7, in which the Thane of Corder considers and envisions the murder of Duncan. Now, um, do you all know this? Um, that's the end of that soliloquy shortly before uh, Lady Macbeth enters. Besides, this Duncan hath borne his faculties so meek, has been so clear in his great office, that his virtues will plead like angels, trumpet-tongued against the deep damnation of his taking off. And pity, like a newborn babe striding the blast, or heaven's cherubim horsed upon the sightless couriers of the air, shall blow the horrid deed in every eye, the tears shall drown the wind. I have no spur to prick the strides of my intent, but only vaulting ambition which overleaps itself and falls on the other. Line highlights Macbeth's use of similes and metaphors as a means for the character to come to terms with a dilemma, a dilemma that he tries to think through in dialectical fashion. Now, Line explains, Duncan's virtues stand up against the murder. They do so strongly with moral purity and loudly like angels with trumpets, or here, since virtues have trumpets even less than they have voices, metaphorically trumpet-tongued. This is a powerful metaphor, but relative to what follows, it is under control. Now, I would argue that control is lost, Macbeth loses control, as images creep up on his thinking. When Macbeth con contemplates pity, the imagery that is triggered, the newborn babe, destabilizes his dialectical vaticination. In Lyon's words, Macbeth's attempt to think about pity generates a strange simile, the naked newborn babe. Once that strange stimuli is triggered, Lyon argues, Macbeth is driven in his thinking by the imagery and its trajectory. And this is Lyon again. The speech is a representation of self-inquiry when emerging feeling pity is subjected to scrutiny. This takes the form of the similes and metaphors outlined above, but characterizing them as inwardly functioning rather than outwardly expressive resolves many of the difficulties of explication into an interest in how their failures are discoveries of sorts. While they do not achieve lucidity, they do approach a kind of self-knowledge as the knotted conflict of Macbeth's tropes maps out his troubled mind. Now, Raphael Lyon resorts to architectural and cartographic metaphors when speculating about the mind's operations. He talks, for example, when, um, uh, when discussing this uh, passage uh, about cynic dog maps onto the tree like diagrams of, ne of neutral networks trying to capture the associative work of the brain. Um, and um, only in the very next sentence really points out that Metaphors can be a way of capturing shifts and capabilities that cannot feasibly be mapped out by means of binary logic or two-dimensional diagrams. So what is it? Um, I think Line uh, is undecided himself. Can mental processes that reflect or constitute uh, synodogs or metaphors be conceived of as operations that can be mapped spatially? Um, is it only two-dimensional diagrams that fail to capture the movement of thought, while that movement can be visualized with the help of three-dimensional or multi-dimensional space? Again, Yeats' attempt to come to terms with the peculiarities of mnemonics in the period can be a helpful stimulant 
to readdress our notions of how visualization in Shakespeare's plays, um, that is the characters really conjuring up images, is connected with thinking. That point, I think, is made poignantly uh, in the manuscript for the paper, uh, The Art of Raymond Lull. Um, <clears throat> which he says, memory through places and images is not, for St. Thomas Aquinas, in itself his intellectual argument. It is the way of remembering the already established and thought out intellectual argument. So did the classical writer first think out the argument of his speech and then imprint it on memory through the technique. The art of Raymond Lull, however, is in itself an intellectual uh, movement. The movements of intellectus in the art are followed by memoria whilst they're being made. I think this sense that uh, the dialectical movement of the intellect um, is followed by memoria is indeed intriguing. This is exactly what happens, according to line at least, to the character Macbeth. Yeats, unfortunately, only ever gestured towards analyzing what effect Ramism may have had on poets and playwrights like Shakespeare. She did so again in a broadcast for the Canadian Broadcasting Company um, that was recorded on the 29th of November 1968. Talking here to the general public, she explains, the art of memory may have had an influence on the minds of great thinkers, poets, and artists of past ages, though this is an aspect of its study which is only beginning. It seems that 50 years on, we are still only beginning to unearth some of the treasures that Gates' art of memory has in store. And I think that, um, and that's a note I wish to end on, I think that in our reappraisal of Gates, we should follow Gavin Alexander, who, at the end of his monograph, writing after Sydney, reminds us that when engaging with literature, the question is not, is it a fact, but is it true? Thank you. <laughs>